Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from TheEthicalPanda.com. And I'm Andy Nelson from The Next Real Film Podcast. And today we're talking about Minute 38, which begins with Jane giving Thor's body a once-over and ends with Sif and the Warriors 3 discussing Thor's exile. Joining us once again is Jessica Plummer of thebookriot.com and uh, the Flights and Tights podcast, which was running for a while. Is that a podcast that's still going on? Uh, it is on indefinite hiatus. Uh, we were covering all these Superman movies, and we have now covered them. And the next task is Superman TV shows. But there's a lot more episodes of TV than <laughs> there are movies. So we're girding our loins. I love we've been talking already about the Superman Thor connection. And I'm sure we'll get more into it over these couple of minutes. But it's definitely a great podcast to check out if you haven't had a chance to, listeners. Um, I was always much more a Batman fan than a Superman fan, and you've really got to give me some new perspectives on the character. Still not my favorite, but it's a great podcast. And we'll have all of both Jessica, Maya, and Andy's thoughts on this minute right after this break. We love delivering content to our listeners that is free of ads that you just don't want to hear. We also love producing this show for you, but it does take time and cost money. What you can do to help us out then is by signing up to become a member for the season. Membership is just $5 per month, or you can get a discount if you join at the annual rate. Members get bonus content, early access to shows, access to live streams, and more. You can learn more at truestory.fm slash Marvel Movie Minute. Well, here we have that sort of finishing of the moment of Jane is moving past him and she kind of can't help but give his body a once over. And Thor is again just totally unfazed. Is this, you think, because he is just so used to people looking at him or that he just is not caring what other people in the room are doing? Like what's what's happening with him in this moment? I think it's a combination of, yeah, like he's he's royal. He's always been the center of attention at in Asgard. He's We very much see him in this in this minute as someone who just accepts certain things as his due, um, like how he then demands sustenance very rudely, you know, which is obviously like part of his arc throughout the movie. But I also think that it's entirely possible that he is not really picking up on it because either just the way that men and women interact in, you know, on Midgard as opposed to Asgard is so completely different or because it's just so you know, discombobulated by everything else that's going on, plus getting hit with a truck twice. (laughs) (laughs) And getting drugged and getting tased. Right, like, maybe he just doesn't notice. But it is one of those things that it does make me think, like, I mean, as you said, he is of royal blood, and there's, there's something about, like, that mentality when you're in a place like that, when you're with... I mean, I, I I would assume that he pretty much thinks everybody on Midgard is kind of at the level of commoners, right? I mean, it's like that's kind of where all of us are. So it's it's one of those things where I just don't think that he even realizes like like these people are so beneath him that it's it's like when earlier you know, we talked about in some of the deleted scenes, like how he just doesn't even he's not even aware of the servants who are there to kind of help him or the, they're the ones who have to do all the cleanup when he knocks things over. Like he just completely pushes them out of the way dismisses them doesn't even think about them and it's the same thing here it's like he's in that mindset where he's at a different level than these people and just isn't even aware that that you know he might be or i I should i should say he 
probably assumes that he's an object of desire, but isn't really thinking that there's anything of that because these people are just so beneath him. And tiny. Yeah, yeah, and very tiny, right. We'll, we'll get to that line, but I, I, the the mortal, my mortal form requires substance is, again, just such a way of distancing himself from these petty things that people are doing. Uh, but then we get this great moment that I, I want to talk about on two different levels. One, in terms of what it tells us about Jane, uh, that she is dressing uh, this guy in her ex's clothes, ex's clothes. I've got a theory on that. But but first, let's just talk about the fact that it, apparently her ex is this guy named Donald Blake. And to most fans, they might think, OK, well, they just they needed a name. So Donald Blake. But that actually is a name with a lot of significance in the comics. For either one of you, what what's the significance of that particular uh, name? Well, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit on the show, right? I mean, he's the he is the Earth form, the the Midgardian form that uh, was in the very first uh, journey into mystery when he turned into Thor. He he picked up a a a stick that he found and and hit it trying to get out of a cave, and it turned it turned into Mjolnir, and he turned into Thor, and that kind of became his his alter ego in those early days. And then later it was revealed he really is actually Thor. It was this whole thing about, uh, I mean, basically this what we're seeing in the movie here. Odin had cast him out as a way to kind of get him to like learn more how to not be such a a prideful egotist and all of that so it very much fits into the story but it's it's fun to kind of see that they're using it in in this little capacity here one thing that i've always really appreciated about the mcu is the willingness to throw in easter eggs and like winks and nudges like i did not know who donald blake was when i first saw this movie and it had no impact on my enjoyment like i it didn't you know like you said, if you don't know that name, then it's just that's the name on this shirt. Although it does imply that she has not washed this shirt because the <laughs> label would have come off. Like, I have questions about the logistics of that, but it doesn't really matter. It's for the gag. But if you do know who Donald Blake is, then it just adds an extra little fun moment of like, oh, that's nice. And for so long, like as a DC fan, the DC movies were so resistant to anything like that and would in fact go very far out of their way to avoid doing Easter eggs. Like there's a moment in one of the Christopher Nolan movies where they go, there's like a truck, a circus truck, and it's similar to Haley's Circus, but it's not Haley's Circus because that would be an Easter egg and we can't have that because that would be fun. And so <laughs> the embracing of these Easter eggs always kind of makes me smile when I know that they're there because sometimes I, I need a Marvel friend to be like, oh, that's actually Thor's secret identity. And it's funny because Donald Blake was a doctor and and here we see Donald Blake, MD. So he's a doctor. And what's what I think is cute is she's like good with patients and bad with relationships. And in the comics, like Donald Blake worked with Jane Foster, who was his nurse. And he always had a thing for her. But it was it was such a thing of the comics of the era where he because he was, quote, cripple. Uh, you know, he was a, a cripple person uh, the way that they wrote it back then. And um, and he's just like, oh, but why would she ever love me? You know, this this cripple person. And, and so it was it was such a funny. I mean, it was just the way that they kind of wrote it to kind of keep him single, I guess. But it was one of those things where it just kind of I, I think it's funny that whole nod here about being bad with relationships. Yeah, I, I think it's just a wonderful thing. I want to say a couple of things there. First, just on the, the Easter egg point, it, it's important, I think, to remember sometimes just how influential the MCU was. Because you're right, until this point, like, people did not want to do Easter eggs like this. And I I recently just got finished doing a set of reviews of The Bad Batch, the new Star Wars TV show, 
uh, on another of my podcasts, and that is full of Easter eggs in a way that Star Wars had very rarely done on film before or on screen before, particularly Easter eggs for the, the Legends canon, which is kind of like the comic book. Like, the Legends books are to Star Wars as the M- the comics are to the MCU, and that it's not official canon, but you can tell the stories are often drawn by there. And so I'm just, it, it's so powerful, I think, to see, yeah, this is where it's really getting started. Oh, and what's funny, to to your point, Jessica, about the fact that she hasn't washed it, she also still has it. Like, when did they break, did they just break up before she came to New Mexico? Like, why does she even have it still? Or is she, like, pining and holding on to it? It's so strange. She dumped her because she's such a bad driver. <laughs> right. Always grabbing the steering wheel. Uh-huh. Well, and I, so here's, here's the theory I have about that. I'm wondering, again, if I'm reading right too much into this, but Thor has a very... You know, he's the classic, like, the V-shaped man. He's got a fairly narrow waist, very broad shoulders. Clothes that fit him do not fit most people. They would look ridiculous on me and, and quite a lot of men. Do you think we're supposed to be getting a small moment of Jane has a fondness for um, men of this particular build? Or is it just, am I just reading way too much in there? Oh, they had to hand him a shirt that would fit. Yeah. <laughs> like, logistically, although it would have been really funny if he, like, pulled it on, and then he's got, like, three inches of midriff showing, and she's like, we'll buy you a new shirt. Like, that also could have yeah. been a very <laughs> funny beat, but probably would have taken up too much screen time. So, yeah, I mean, maybe she has a type, or maybe it's just as Guardian magic that anything he puts on, because, like, <laughs> the shirt stretches. The jeans fit perfectly. Those jeans are tailored to those hips. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which no one is complaining about. <laughs> and it's it's one of those things where it's like, it could have been Eric's shirts, right? I mean, that's the thing. It's like they, they designed it to be Donald Blake and just so we can get stuff that fits him so well. But yeah, I mean, Eric otherwise would have been the other option. It's like, well, let's let's see what Eric has and throw something on him. Because, I mean, yeah, it, it probably would be okay. But I, it's so much funnier this way. And yeah, it's who as Guardian Magic, whatever it is, to make it fit so well. I do want to make one more point about Donald Blake. Uh, this comes from uh, from the source material uh, about the movie. Originally, the persona of Dr. Donald Blake, Thor's alternate identity and personality, was going to be in this movie, and Kevin McKidd was considered for the part. Uh, Blake was written out and said, so they said, use this. But the original version of the movie was going to have Donald Blake in it. And Kevin McKidd is a name that some people might recognize because he was in, uh, he was Lucius Verinius in Rome, the the HBO show. He was Tommy McKenzie in Train Spotting, and I only know about this one because I lived a year in Ireland, and most people have probably never heard of it. But there was a gloriously wonderful Irish TV show called Father Ted, all about the um, oddities of Catholic priests in Ireland, and it is incredibly irreverent, literally, and incredibly funny. And he played Father Deegan in the '96 Christmas special. I'd like to say most people probably know him from his time on Grey's Anatomy because he's been in like 300 plus episodes on that show. <laughs> That's okay, well, that's probably where people know him from. This is why I don't run the IMDb games. Those were the things I first found when I looked him up. I saw him a lot just because my wife watched that show all the time. I just feel like we kind of dodged a bullet because, I mean, even in the context of goofy Silver Age comics, Thor having a secret identity is a weird idea. And trying to fit that in whatever form they wanted to fit that into the movie is just like, I can't wrap my head around it, and it's probably for the best that I'm not being required to. 
especially now, like now that we have Shazam, which is very much that same sort of thing, right? Like you strike the thing on the ground and, or in that, you know, he says the magic word and he turns into a totally different person and it would be the same thing. Like he'd be striking his cane on the ground and now he's this big, you know, muscular hero. It, it would be very strange. And I'm glad that they decided, you know what, let's just drop that whole thing. Yeah, I, I, think, it, I think it works a lot better this way. Yeah, absolutely. As we mentioned, Thor then, um, first of all, just shows no gratitude. You know, the it will suffice, which, which again, it's just like, you know, a servant came to you and offered you this help. So dismissive. <laughs> and then the uh, the mortal form has grown weak. I require sustenance. As guardians eat, don't they? I mean, is it that they don't, do they not get hungry and they just eat for pleasure? Is wh- What are we supposed to take from like the mortal form has grown weak. I require sustenance. Is he assuming that his body is different? here because that's not something that's backed up by anything else so is he just like i'm tired it's probably because i'm on midgard yeah (laughs) it's a it's such a strange well first first i have to say that when he says that it makes me think i don't know if you either of you remember the gaunt the video game called gauntlet where you could like run around in dungeons and and you could pick either a, a warrior or a magician or an elf or something else and it just reminds me of the voice that would pop up like the games master like when you needed food the war it would say warrior needs food badly and it just like totally makes me think of that when i hear him say that because it's just it's like such a it, it's it's so separate from the character it's like is he himself right here it just doesn't like who says that it's so weird and he's calling himself mortal so you know actually this is an interesting thing to bring up because we talked about this back in the banquet hall they have those golden apples which they eat on asgard those are the things that give them their immortality so it's entirely possible he's been too long without his golden apples and so maybe he is actually feeling more mortal now than he has in a very long time maybe he's just never encountered anything like a taser before and he could very easily be tased on asgard but he doesn't know that so he's like my entire physical form must be different. That's the only way that this servant girl could have brought me down. Yeah, there's there's no ability to like, maybe I am, because it's the same thing in the hospital fight where he just can't imagine how these pesky human orderlies could be giving him a real fight. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think the, the, the ego there is a big part of it. Been, yeah, because there's been a truck, there's been, uh, there's been a taser, there's been all those people in the hospital, there's with the, the needle that he's also been injected with and then getting hit by another car. So like all these things that it's, I I think there's just a buildup of stuff that should be by now showing him something's wrong. Something's off. Uh, Worth noting. There are no bruises anywhere on that chest that we saw, which is kind of impressive given the number of blunt objects that he's been hit by at this point. (laughs) Um, But so, so I I described this particular scene as Thor is hungry. Darcy is thirsty. uh, Cause we do again, get her just giving this outright stare. She's like, she just looks like she wants popcorn, you know, she's enjoying the show. She gives Eric a look and he seems to have no idea what's going on. Uh, but Andy, what's your take on the scene? OK, so I read that totally differently. That's interesting. I mean, obviously, there's the thirst factor and, there, you know, it's it's funny that this is happening. Uh, we're talking about this uh, Tuesday and Wednesday because really it should be happy. Happy Thursday is when we should be doing this <laughs> instead of Thursday. But. I mean, she's obviously staring at him still, but I think her reaction when she looks to Eric is the fact that he's talking like a nut job again. And I think that this is her really saying, ah, see, he is crazy because Eric totally gives the same look like, what is this guy talking about? Like none of the stuff he says sounds like anyone who is from Earth says. I mean, it's just it's nonsense talk. Yeah, I got the same vibe of like, 
okay, this guy's insane and also a dick. Like they're it's the, yeah. it's the look you give your friend when somebody's really like rude when somebody is just like acting out and you're like uh did you hear that because what a jerk that's fair that that may well be the more accurate take on it i i I will stand by the way i saw it but i think i can totally understand where you're seeing it um and so then we get this uh we now go back to asgard and they do this thing that i I think movies may do a lot but especially noticed in this movie where the sound cue for asgard starts like a second or two before we actually move to Asgard. Like we have the last second or two in this office is the Asgardian music starting to kick in. Um, and is that a, a filmmaking technique that that has any particular name or that that you notice being done a lot in this movie? Or is it just that I'm picking up on it that but it happens all the time? Well, it is. A, I mean, I will argue with you a bit, a little bit about it because there's actually a car passing by and the car engine gets really loud right here as the music kind of kicks in. And what we're getting here is a dissolve from the car engine to the music that kicks in with the transition. So it's a little bit of both of those things happening, but there is a little, what's called an L cut is what it is. Or sometimes it's a J cut, depending on which way it is, but it happens all the time. And editors use it as a technique when they cut the audio and the video slightly differently to help those transitions so that we, as the viewer don't notice them necessarily quite as much and to me i mean leaving the sound aside it's such a like i I agree that it does sort of ease you into that transition but the visual contrast is so high and like the thing that i noticed first um about you know when we're still in new mexico i was like oh i think those are real people i think they're in a real building and those are extras and a real car behind them like this is before absolutely everything in a marvel movie was done in front of a green screen holding like some green screen prop that would eventually be cgi'd into like a telephone or whatever um it feels it feels lived in but it's also like this very beautiful sunny bright new mexico day that and and very you know sort of rural and working class that cuts to the opulence of asgard at night and it's just a really like i'm sure that you know you have spoken about the set design in Asgard plenty at this point. But for me coming in in this, you know, that's the first moment that we see Asgard in this set of minutes. And it was like, oh, yeah, Asgard is gorgeous, but it's so it's so strikingly different. And I think it really highlights again, like what a fish out of water Thor is in this particular moment. I think I think it's so important on a couple levels, especially because at least what I got is until now, pretty much everything we've seen in Asgard was this bright, sunny day, bright, sunny day. You know, it's kind of the the Greek Elysian fields where it's always summer kind of idea. And so now that Thor is gone, we've had this real disruptive moment. It's dark and it's night. And, And of course, night comes to Asgard. But I just thought it was very interesting that they. They choose to show it to us in darkness because you're right. It's such a transition from where we just were in New Mexico. Well, and it's funny, though, because we had talked about that before because it seemed like it always was sunny. And so it was a, it was kind of a for me uh, coming to the scene. I'm like, oh, OK, so they they do have night in Asgard because we're like, how does that work? Is it I mean, is it just like a pancake that's flipping around over and over and over in space? Like it it seems so peculiar. The uh, It's Asgard magic and science. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, it, none of it really makes sense. But it's kind of fun to kind of try to figure these sorts of things out. But yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful shot. And actually, I think for, for me, the transition from kind of like the city at night, and then as we kind of pan over through again, 
the, they also have these magnificently large just windows, or in this case, they just kind of are openings in Asgard. But it transitions us from this amazing CG exterior to an, a physical set, which is just a beautifully crafted uh, physical set that, uh, I mean, Bo Welch put together. It's just, it's, it really is gorgeous. Yeah, I certainly don't think anyone worries about square footage when finding apartments or houses in Asgard. Like they, <laughs> they have, the, and granted, this in the palace. And I was trying to figure out, and I couldn't find anything. Do either of you know is is this a specific room in the palace that they're in that that we have reference to? What what room are they in? This is the healing room. Um, it is the is the room they come to when they need to uh, be healed. Which, uh, as I mean, Odin told them to go take them to the healing room uh, when they were leaving um, uh, Heimdall's observatory. And uh, what's interesting about this is, I mean, you know, we have Heimdall's observatory, which is also the Himmenbjörg. We have the palace, which is also the Valakskjalf. And here, it's nothing. There's no other funky Nordic name for this. It's just the healing room. I mean, it's funny because with the fire pit, it just makes me think it's the après ski room. Like, they're all about to have <laughs> totally. hot, like, hot toddies. Yeah. Well, the, what, the reason it's the healing room, and this is interesting because it actually was developed more in the script. What they do in this fire pit in the middle, there are healing stones, and they heat up these healing stones, which apparently you can grab, because as we actually start the scene, we see Hogan walking over and stepping down into the fire pit, and they cut all of it out. He actually grabs some healing stones out of the fire. The fire doesn't burn. The healing stones don't burn. He picks them up. He takes them over to Volstag, and as he kind of rubs them on his skin, they heal the, the necrotic flesh that he got from the frost giant, and crumble to dust and that's kind of the whole purpose of coming to this room um but they cut all of that like they removed any reference to healing stones uh in the final film which actually i was noticing it makes it a little unclear what's happening because yeah he like steps into the fire pit and then he walks over to volstag and he like kind of rubs his arm but you don't really see what he's doing <laughs> and then when right. you get a close enough look at volstag his arm is fine and i was like I guess that was magic healing. I mean, it's not that hard for like your brain to fill in what happened, but when you are looking at it minute by minute, you're like, that didn't make any sense. Yeah, right. Yeah, like I definitely thought that was some sort of massage thing happening. And I was like, hey, if he can go on my back like that, that, you know, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> and so let's talk about the scene. Cause I think we get like I, I love the reactions, obviously. And it seems like here what we're getting is I, I think we're going a little bit backwards in time because this seems to be very soon after they've all gotten back from Asgard, uh, you know, right after they've watched, you know, they've heard about Thor getting uh, sent back to Earth. And with each of them, we get like their reaction to to it. So let's kind of go through them one by one. So Volstagg starts out with the, you know, we should have never let him go. He, he's concerned for his friend and he's taking blame, which We've talked a lot about how Volstagg had, especially in the stuff that was cut, really been the fat comic relief. And I'm so glad we left most of that on the cutting room floor. I like that here we're getting a little bit more of a serious side of him, that he is he's the one who kind of takes the blame and who is worried about Thor. I feel like Volstagg has really powerful dad energy, and that's very much coming out here like, it was my responsibility to keep this kid safe and I didn't do it. Yeah, he he definitely carries the guilt of this scenario, um, which is funny because, like, I, I don't know, they knew they shouldn't have let Thor Thor go. I mean, you know, he's he's convinced to do this because Thor says, "Remember all that great food I gave you," and he's like, "Oh yeah," like that's all it took. So, but so yeah, I th I think that they they know that it wasn't a good idea, and yeah, I can I can totally understand them feeling as guilty as they are right now. So I, I like that he's doing that. Of course, 
I will point out that he still does have a goblet of wine that he is drinking here. So they're continuing the the themes of Volstagg always having food or drink. Dull the pain, you know, dull the <laughs> yes, pain. That's right. Um, so then we get Sif, who is just, it, it seems like continuing what we've known for her. She seems the one who's kind of the most over Thor. Like in the, you know, there was, there's no stop. There was no stopping him. She just kind of seems like resigned. Like in her mind, we went along because, of course, what else could we do? Yeah, the thing that really strikes me about Sif in this scene, she seems really stiff and uncomfortable in a way that everybody else, like the, I mean, Hogan is standing up, but Volstagg and Fandral are like kind of lounging and she's just like very upright. And I don't know if it like the costume doesn't look uncomfortable compared to what, you know, like a super suit, but I was still like, why is she sitting like that? Like it seems there's something very awkward in her posture. I guess I was thinking it was the chairs that they were sitting in because Volstagg's seems a little more, uh, uh, I don't know. At first, I thought it was it was less a couch because hers seems more a sofa. But I think it's just the angle. I think he's sitting on the exact same thing. So, yeah, I don't know. She does seem very rigid, though. Yeah, rigid's a good word for it. For it. Yeah, I think that'll be something we should comment on in the next, like, uh, tomorrow and Friday, because I think we're going to see more of sort of what's going on with her as the, as this scene plays out. Um, Fandral then, you know, he just says, you know, at least we're not dead, which seems kind of fitting since he was the one who was badly wounded. Uh, what do you take of his reaction? I mean, he's the party guy, right? <laughs> uh, well, and, and also, I mean, you know, he's healed. So, uh, you know, to this point of the healing room, we don't see a gaping wound in his chest. I mean, it's uh, speaking of kind of the whole thirst factor. I mean, he's here. He is sitting like lounging around. He's got his vest and his bare chest just kind of sitting there. Um, I'm assuming it's just because he's uh, because he had had to have it kind of like uh, the healing stones applied to his chest and his back and stuff. But. Um, but he seems at this point very healed and very just kind of casual about this whole thing. I was really distracted by, like, is he wearing a hoodie? Because it definitely looks like a <laughs> sleepless hoodie. You know, it's, you're healing. He's kind of a patient. Maybe it's a Snuggie. You know, you just want him to feel as comfortable as possible. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Also important, uh, we've been talking about this as our, our understanding. Here, he, we have confirmation now that a guard told Odin. And of course, it's probably the guard who we saw Loki go and talk to. So now we do have full confirmation of exactly what happened. Loki said something to the guard, and the guard went and told Odin. And Fandral seems pretty pretty grateful for that. You know, he's, he's kind of being that realist of, you know, let's just be happy this didn't turn out a lot. You know, Volstagg is worried about Thor. Fandral is, you know, let's just be glad it wasn't worse. This is where I think that they likely thinned out some of the that uh, deleted scene earlier when we saw Loki actually go talk to the guard. Um, I, I, I feel like they might have ended up cutting some of that because otherwise, why is Hogan not reacting at all in this particular scene? Like, that's where it's strange. You know, if that guard hadn't told Odin where we're go where, where we had gone. And, and and Loki's, well, we won't get to Loki's reveal yet, but still, it's like that whole idea, it's like Hogan would have seen that. We saw him see it. So it would have been very weird uh, to have that included. So I think that's probably why we cut that. Um, but it does, I, what it does now, without having seen that before, uh, it allows for this mystery of this guard. And I think that is pretty interesting here. 
And then, as you said, we get Hogan. Hogan doesn't say a word. He's just doing what he needs to do. You know, he's at first I thought he was just kind of pacing back and forth because he's nervous. But then once, you, as we just said, you watch it. He's, um, you know, what he's doing is he's the healer apparently in this group. He's going to get the healing stone. He's taking care of Volstag. Yeah, which looks painful. <laughs> yeah, Volstag definitely he... flinches a bit uh, when it first happens. And then, uh, and then we get Loki. Tom Hiddleston is a baby. Like I just, I, know. I, I was so shocked when. We got that close-up of him. I mean, yes, this, this was 10 years ago, but they all look younger. Like, everybody looks younger. It's a little bit, you know, hard to tell with Chris Hemsworth because he is so uh, bleached and glazed. But, <laughs> but yeah, Tom Hiddleston looks like an infant. Well, one thing I was reading was that Tom Hiddleston actually intentionally lost some weight for the movie because he wanted to look kind of hungry and like drawn. You know, they wanted him to look like the kind of vulture type character who's just, you know, always not quite getting what he wants. Um, but yeah, so I think that's part of it. He definitely seems to have filled out a lot more by the time we get to the Loki TV show or even, you know, Ragnarok. But but yeah, it's just the face is so young. And what do you take the, from his from what he's doing? Because it's. What I see here is that he's ignoring everyone else. He's just staring at his hand because I think this is when it's really starting to hit him. Like, what is it that happened when we were on Jotunheim and my hand turned blue? It really feels like he's trying to put these pieces together still. Like he's like, obviously, there is a huge thing that he's learning and and he's processing. And it's interesting because so much of what has happened, like he has set into motion. He didn't necessarily plan everything to go the way it did. But still, he's using it all to his advantage. But this is that one thing that all of a sudden happened while he was on Jotunheim that was completely unexpected. And now he is like in a place where he's puzzling probably a lot more than he's had to in quite a while to kind of put all these puzzle pieces together. Yeah, I think that contributes to what makes him feel so young, not just that like Tom Hiddleston looks a lot younger than he does now, but which he doesn't look old now. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. But that confusion is not something that I expect to see from Loki. Like, torment, sure. Like, being tormented by, you know, his past and everything that he's been through and whatever. But just, like, flat out, wait, what's going... Like, being in over his head. I mean, I say that as somebody who has not yet watched the Loki TV show. I'm assuming there was confusion when the you know, crocodile Loki showed up and stuff. Like I've seen the gifts, but <laughs> it just, he, he's a mastermind, but he's a mastermind very early in his masterminding career. Um, you know, turning into a snake and biting Thor when they're eight, notwithstanding like this, these are early days for him. And he, he's still trying to figure out who he is and how it all works. And it really, it makes him feel a, much younger, and B, and like I'm sure we'll get to this more in the next minute or so, but much more ambiguous as a character because he, I don't think he knows what he wants. Yeah, I think I think that's really important because, uh, Jessica, you've heard this one thing we've been talking about a lot throughout this time, especially during that, you know, scene with him and Loki, with Loki, Odin, and Thor, is kind of trying to figure out when is Loki being the master manipulator and when is he being kind of carried off by events himself, you know, and a lot of times it's hard to tell. And I think, you know, as someone who's played poker for a long time, I know that like when you don't want your face to give anything away, often a a thing you can do is just to focus entirely on something else, you know? And so I I think I could read this moment as 
Loki is just really trying hard not to give the game away while the friends are talking about it. But I don't think, I think you're right. That's not what's happening. He's just, he's not even aware really of what they're saying. He's just so focused on what happened with my hand and trying to understand that. Yeah. Well, I think he is aware. Like, I mean, he's obviously paying attention. We'll find out in the next minute. Well, like, right, he, but it's in the background. It's kind of what I mean, you know? Yeah, it's one of those things where his, like, he's really going through this this puzzle right now that he's kind of found himself in because of everything. Like, he's probably more focused on this now, I mean, than dealing with his brother. I mean, this is such a huge switch, a change in his life that has suddenly been revealed, so. I think he's, you know, emotionally and mentally focused on what am I, what happened to me, and he gets pulled out of that thought spiral back into the conversation when he's like, oh, wait, actually, like, I'm going to engage with this. And we'll be getting to that tomorrow. So I think that's probably a good place where we can wrap up. Is there any other last cuff? I have one last thing I want to mention. Any other last things you wanted to bring up for either of you? One last thing I wanted to bring up is, you know, I, I briefly talked about Bo Welch and the production design of this healing room. Um, over the fire is a giant ram's head. This, you know, we've had kind of different themes in some of the rooms, like the banquet hall. Everything kind of felt like Viking ships. Here, everything is like ram's heads. So at the ends of each of these benches, it's it's kind of like a ram, an Art Deco ram. And over the fire is this giant head. It's hard to ever get a good view of it. But if you look at production stills, you can actually see the giant spiraling horns on either side of it. So it's it's pretty cool. I love the, the physical design of this space. The visuals of Asgard are just like so consistently strong. And I always notice the fashion, like what everybody is wearing. It does such a good job of marrying like that sort of not Norse aesthetic, but like the fairy tale aesthetic with this sleek, futuristic outer space aesthetic in this really like opulent, elegant way that doesn't look like anything else in the MCU. And I just I'm. I always appreciate it every time we see Asgard. So many of the actors have talked about how some of their favorite costumes that they've worn, like Renee Russo said this, like she couldn't believe like the amazing costumes they kept putting her in. She's like, this is like better than the last one. She was always amazed uh, by how they looked. So, yeah, absolutely. Jeff, you talked before, I think this was yesterday, but about how this movie uh, and, and the Thor character, like it can have a cartoonish aspect to it. You know, we're not... Not that Iron Man or or the Hulk is terribly grounded in reality, but they were at least pretending to be to some extent. You know, it was science on Earth, dealing with people on Earth. And now we are in such a totally different world. And there's so many details like that where they managed to make it look otherworldly and incredible, but not sort of, it, it's never to the point of eye rolling, you know, where it kind of takes you out of it in a way that I think could have very easily happened in trying to introduce, you know, space gods into the MCU. Yeah, no, it's very elegant, and I think that's what carries it, that that dignity that it always has. Obviously, also, this is, as anyone who's watched What If was recently reminded, this is not happening in isolation. Uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. and the world are very busy right now. What's happening in the MCU while what we're watching is happening? Yeah, I mean, we've talked a little bit about kind of like how, you know, there is such a uh, confluence of everything happening in The Incredible Hulk. Iron Man 2 and this. This is still June 10th. We've brought that up a few times. Right now, Bruce Banner, he is uh, at near Culver University. He's out delivering pizzas so that he can sneak onto campus and uh, kind of steal that data off of uh, Betty's computer. 
and this is the day after the attack at uh, Stark Expo, and and Tony is trying to kind of like get his get all the like pieces back into place in his life. So, uh, yeah, it's like everything is happening right in this uh, in this window of time. And you know, I mean, they they put it out in a comic book at one point called uh, you know Fury's Big Week, which again was of course the name of that What If episode. So it's very much been kind of like as soon as they decided all of this was happening here, it makes for a very interesting. Uh, story as to like you know where is uh, Fury sending uh, uh, Black Widow because she is actually at um, as they talked about on the Incredible Hulk minute uh, he's there or she's there while all of the stuff is happening with Banner and of course all the stuff with Coulson here and so all of this stuff is happening uh, at this at this window of time so it's a very busy time in the Marvel Cinematic Universe at this moment definitely all right well. As always, thank you both so much to all of our fans. Thank you for tuning in and being a part of this. Always want your feedback. Uh, Jess, we've talked about your podcast stuff. Um, tell us a little bit more about the book uh, and the story you wrote. Uh, no spoilers because it has some wonderful twists. But just like what, what was this idea of having modern day Arthurian stories? Yeah, so um, the book is Swordstone Table um, from Vintage. It is uh, an anthology of Arthurian retellings, um, diverse Arthurian retellings, um, by women, people of color, uh, LGBTQ people, etc. Um, and the editors just sort of said, whatever you want to write, go for it. Um, and I looked back at the mythology and I landed on Elaine, um, who is sort of a minor but consistent, or actually several minor um, figures across Arthurian legend. And I've always been fascinated by the idea of Arthur as uh he will, you know, return when England has need of him. So I thought it'd be interesting to put him in a modern setting um, and have sort of an outsider recognizing that this is Arthur and what does it mean um, when you are a humble barista just trying to make it make it on minimum wage and all of a sudden Arthur and Lancelot are in your coffee shop. Yeah, it's it's really well done. I, I really enjoyed it. And um so many other great stories in there as well. Well, Jess, thank you so much. We're looking forward to having you the rest of the week. Andy, thank you as always to all of our fans. Thank you so much and have a great day. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. Thank you.